listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Hello and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. PTCE Pharmacy Connect. This is the next podcast. Actually, you could call it a part two for our chronic lymphocytic leukemia discussion. This is going to be insights into the pharmacist's role in therapy management. I want to welcome back Dr. Catherine Tobin, who's a clinical pharmacy specialist in malignant hematology with Moffitt Cancer Center in sunny Tampa, Florida. Welcome back, Catherine. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be here again. It is. And it's probably just as beautiful and sunny as it was there before, as I was complaining about Western Pennsylvania only getting 68 days of sunshine per year. Now you can see why I'm a little bit uptight about it. (laughs) Yes, we did get rain this weekend, but I must say it's definitely a beautiful day again today. Well, thank you for returning and being part of really building out the information, starting kind of where we left off. And, you know, for our listeners, we want you to get the most out of these PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcasts. So we'd like to um, just kind of dive in and helping our listeners understand onboarding plans to effectively prevent, monitor, and educate patients about adverse events of oral therapies for CLL treatment and picking up kind of where we left off. So we have previously talked about preferred treatment options for CLL leukemia, and just wanna review what are some of the examples of therapies that are preferred in clinical guidelines? Yeah, so the preferred frontline therapies include our Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors, as well as our BCL2 inhibitors with the monoclonal CD20s. Now the frontline options include a calibrutinib with or without obinutuzumab, a brutinib, or that combination of venetoclax and obinutuzumab. So I want to let the listeners know, um, just in setting the stage, we are going to have a link in our show notes to get you to part one. If you didn't listen to part one, Dr. Catherine Tobin, tell us just a little bit about you, and then we're going to dig deeper into this because I have some uh, more questions. Yeah, so I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist here at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. I primarily work in the clinic setting, and I work um, with a large group of providers, the frontline providers in CLL, and we see dozens of CLL patients every day. So I'm actively involved in choosing the frontline therapy as well as monitoring, and that's really what we're going to spend a lot of time on today, is once we've picked a therapy for patients, how do we manage all the different toxicities? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. So just to review, we've already listed some examples of therapies that are preferential in clinical guidelines, and we much appreciated that. Let's also talk about are are different treatments used if a patient is newly diagnosed or if they've been um, on the therapy before? 
So the same drug classes are utilized both in the upfront and relapse refractory CLL. So the, main, the two big ones we keep talking about are the BTK inhibitors, the CD20 monoclonals, and then venetoclax, our BCL2 inhibitor. Even though the same classes are used, we wouldn't necessarily use the exact same drug. So for example, let's say we have a patient, Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith was initially started on treatment with venetoclax and obinutuzumab based on the CLL trial that we talked about in part one. After a few years of treatment, he relapsed and required treatment again. We wouldn't necessarily try venetoclax again. It'd probably be more appropriate to start a brutinib or a BTK inhibitor. And then after some time, if Mr. Smith does not tolerate a brutinib, we could switch to a different BTK inhibitor. There are times that we would switch classes again if the patient had a mutation, but that's a little more rare. All right, so adverse effects and management of that. I know it's going to be different for different patients. And then of course you have to be that expert on this to express that back to our other care providers and physicians. So I let's talk about that for a second. So what are some of the more common adverse effects we see with therapies used for CLL? So the most common adverse effect we see with CLL overall is definitely fatigue. So our patients really battle fatigue throughout treatment. Now myelosuppression is also common among the different therapies. Now all of our oral targeted agents venetoclax or the BTK inhibitors, they're all substrates at 3A4. So not only do we have to worry about the most common toxicities, but we really have to worry about drug interactions. And that's really where pharmacists play a huge role. Now, each of these treatment modalities have their own unique set of toxicities like you started to mention. So let's talk about those. Which one would you like to talk about first? Why are adverse effects different among BTK inhibitors? Like why... Can, I mean, is there, is there more information you can share on some of the differences between those therapies? Yeah, so BTK inhibitors are a great first drug class to talk about. So there are three different BTK inhibitors that we utilize in CLL, abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanubrutinib. There are a handful of toxicities that are common among all of them. So we have transient lymphocytosis. That's where the white count continues to go up. Now that is not an indication of worsening disease, and that can be bothersome to patients who watch their counts really religiously. Now, myelosuppression is another common class-wide effect. There's an infection risk, a bleeding risk. And if patients have baseline hepatic impairment, we might do some dose reductions. But now let's talk about the differences like you asked. So first, I want to talk about abrutinib because abrutinib is the oldest and the only first-generation BTK inhibitor. So patients take abrutinib one time a day. We see the highest incidence of diarrhea, cardiac arrhythmias, hypertension, as well as myalgias with abrutinib. Now the hypertension doesn't necessarily occur right when you start treatment. It actually is more common to occur later on with prolonged, tre with prolonged treatment. And that's true among all the BTK inhibitors. However, we definitely see the most hypertension with abrutinib. Now, the more serious adverse effects, which I'm sure our audience is concerned about, we have a lot of cardiac toxicity as well as bleeding risk. And those are the highest with the brutinib. Grade two bleeding events were observed around 6% of patients, new onset AFib, anywhere from six to 9% of patients. And then follow-up data tells us those numbers can be even higher. So with the brutinib and dose reductions, the big things are myalgias, hypertension, myelosuppression, or diarrhea. 
So after a few years, you know, the drug companies came together and a calibrutinib was FDA approved. So this was our first FDA approved second generation BTK inhibitor. Now this one's a little different because patients have to take this one twice a day. So not only do they take it twice a day, it still has the drug interactions with CYP3A4 that we talked about, but a calibrutinib also needs an acidic environment. So patients that may have any issues with GERD or heartburn and they're on a PPI, this acalabrutinib may not be the best option. Now, the unique toxicity with acalabrutinib is a headache. It normally does resolve with time, so about a month or two with treatment, and normally it's manageable with caffeine. Now, those more serious adverse effects we talked about are actually lower with acalabrutinib. So AFib, 9% um, or lower, 4% of major bleeding, less than 10% of hypertension. So overall, a calibrutinib, more drug interactions, take it twice a day, but on the cardiac side, it definitely seems more favorable for our patients. Now, I just wanna to touch on the newest BTK inhibitor, zanubrutinib. Now, I'd like to note that this is not FDA approved in CLL, but it is listed in the NCCN guidelines as a treatment option. Xanabrutinib is FDA approved for relapsed or refractory mantle cell lymphoma, Waldenstrom's, as well as marginal zone lymphoma. Now, if you look at the package insert, it says Xanabrutinib can be taken twice a day or once a day. And I'll tell you in clinical practice and definitely with the PK of the medication, we prefer it to be taken twice a day. Most common side effects with this one, again, bruising, diarrhea, but the key and unique toxicity with Xanabrutinib is neutropenia. So this can be managed with growth factor support, um, but it's not something to ignore because we know that our CLL patients are already inherently at a higher risk of infection. Now back to those more serious cardiac toxicities, they're even lower with xanabrutinib. Some reports of only 2% AFib, uh, most of the bleeding being mild and hypertension around 6%. However, I will tell you what I've seen in clinical practice is we are still seeing some higher incidence of xanabrutinib or we're seeing higher incidence of hypertension with xanabrutinib as treatment goes on. So we definitely still wanna keep a close mind on this. So to kind of recap, we have our three big BTK inhibitors. We have a brutinib, a calibrutinib, and xanabrutinib. We see the highest incidence of diarrhea, cardiac arrhythmias, hypertension, and myalgias with the brutinib. A calibrutinib's hallmark toxicity is a headache. And the newest BTK inhibitor, xanabrutinib, neutropenia is definitely the hallmark toxicity. All right, what about some general management strategies for cardiac adverse effects specifically? So this is another great question. It's something that we talk about every single day in clinical practice. So the key cardiac adverse effects that we see with BTK inhibitors are atrial fibrillation, bleeding, and hypertension. Let's just start with atrial fibrillation. So AFib, obviously, you know, is very concerning, and especially we know that CLL is more common in the elderly population. So all of these patients should have a baseline cardiac assessment. Now, many of our large NCC and cancer centers actually have a joint cardio-oncology program that they work really closely with, and this is definitely something that's of benefit. But even the community practices, if you do have a patient on a BTK inhibitor, I would recommend patients getting a baseline cardiac assessment. Now, let's say they started treatment and AFib or a flutter did occur. The first thing you do is you calculate the CHADS2 VAS score. And you kind of go back to the basics. So if the score is zero to one, generally the patient's okay to continue the BTK inhibitor. 
However, if that CHADS2 VAS score is two or greater, then we really need to have a joint discussion about risk versus benefit for the, clinic, for the clinical team and the patient. Now, if we do treatment for the AFib, which we definitely can, and there are many times that we do, we generally prefer beta blockers over calcium channel blockers, and that's really because of the drug interactions. And the same with amiodarone. We would try to avoid amiodarone if a patient is still on a BTK inhibitor. Now, anticoagulation can be considered in select patients. In clinical practice, what we typically prefer would be low-dose apixaban, 2.5 milligrams twice a day, or even low molecular weight heparin, such as anoxaparin. Now, another serious cardiac event or just serious adverse event that we watch for is bleeding. So there is a risk of both mild and severe bleeding with all of our BTK inhibitors. So the easiest option is to avoid any unnecessary elective procedures. Now, if any type of surgical procedure is required, it is important that patients know to hold their BTK inhibitor. This is almost one of the medications that I wish was on one of those inherent lists that all surgeons must ask patients about. So the package insert for all of them recommend the BTK inhibitor to be held anywhere from three to seven days, both before and after surgery. And that range all has to do about the risk of bleeding of the given procedure. Now, if a patient does experience unprovoked minor bleeding, we typically recommend to hold the oral agent, so the BTK inhibitor, for about two to three days. And patients should be transfused for severe bleeding regardless of platelet count. And then just good mindfulness of our pharmacist. It's always good to review the patient's medication list and make sure they're not on any unnecessary medications that may increase the risk of bleeding, such as fish oil or vitamin E or anything else that may, they may not truly need. Now, the last big cardiac adverse effect that we had been talking about is hypertension. There's nothing special about the management of hypertension with the BTK inhibitors. The big thing is to know you have to monitor for it long-term. So just because a patient's been on the treatment for three weeks or even two months and you're not seeing hypertension, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen three or four months down the road. So the incidence does increase over time, and it really just needs to be managed according to the most recent guidelines in conjunction with the patient's primary caregiver. What are common adverse effects or treatment considerations with venetoclax? So venetoclax is another one of our oral targeted agents, and it is well tolerated overall, but does come with its own unique considerations that are very different from our BTK inhibitors. So the big thing it's associated with is tumor lysis syndrome, and this is why the dose is slowly increased over a five-week period. So the medication is taken once a day, ideally at the same time each day with the meal, and the manufacturer does have a nice starter pack for CLL ramp-up that provides clear instructions for our patients. So the patients will take 20 milligrams for one week, and then 50 milligrams for another week, and then 100 milligrams, et cetera, all the way up to the final dose of 400 milligrams once a day. So the big thing is that patients must have appropriate tumor lysis, prophylaxis, and monitoring. And the exactly how we monitor in prophylax depends on the patient's risk of TLS. So the bottom line is the TLS monitoring is really extensive during the ramp-up period. In most cases, patients are required to get labs checked prior to each ramp-up, and then anywhere from six to eight hours after they take the first dose, and then additionally 24 hours. So this can be pretty cumbersome for patients who don't live close to an established cancer center. Now, the risk of TLS, like I said, depends on the patient's risk factors. So we look at disease burden, such as adenopathy, lymphocyte count, 
Low and intermediate risk patients can mostly be managed outpatient as long as they can come to and from the cancer center to get labs drawn. And then high-risk patients really should be monitored in the inpatient setting. Now, not only do we need to treat tumor lysis if it occurs, so adequate fluids, plus or minus respiracase, we also need to prevent it. So pre preventing it is again established or accomplished by adequate hydration, allopurinol, and maybe raspiricase in patients with an elevated uric acid level. So tumor lysis is not the only thing we watch out for with venetoclacs. The other most common side effects include cytopenia, especially neutropenia that we might need growth factor support, diarrhea, edema. We still can see myalgias, low incidence of nausea, but there also is an incidence of upper respiratory tract infections. And then the notable adverse event to watch out for is febrile neutropenia, which can be seen in about 5% of patients. And like we have talked about the tumor lysis syndrome. Excellent, thank you. I am now understanding more because of what you've shared in the first episode. And you were really talking about um, therapy best practices and things that you've learned over the years. And I want you to express to our listeners and listeners, if you have feedback on this, uh, please reach out to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team with maybe some additional examples we can, we can talk about more later, but can you walk us through an example of a workflow of something that you've learned um, over the years of how your uh, thought process when selecting a therapy uh, for a patient um, starting therapy for CLL? Yes, of course. So as we discussed earlier, there are two main drug classes that we consider. So first is venetoclax, which is our BCL2 inhibitor. The other drug class are BTK inhibitors. So we kind of need to come up with a thought process of how to choose one or the other. Now, each of these drug classes has unique adverse effects or side effects and, and specific monitoring. So we definitely take that into account. But before even jumping down that route, I first need to assess compliance and concomitant medications that the patient's on. All of these require oral treatment that the patient must be reliant to take on, it, to take on their own at home. Now, if it's an elder patient that already has an extensive cardiac history or maybe a higher risk of bleeding, then I would definitely prefer venetoclax in that situation. However, if we have a patient that lives in a more rural area and they're unable to drive to and from a cancer center, then maybe I would prefer the BCL2 inhibitor like a brutinib because it would be really difficult for the patient to come to and from those lab monitoring for tumor lysis syndrome. So those are the two big things we think about in addition to all the patient's additional medications or any other risk factors they may have. Thank you for that. So, you know, we've talked every time, we always get an opportunity for our guest pharmacist to explain um, the counseling side of this. So would you, you know, how would you counsel this patient aside from adverse effects and, and what other things would you mention to them? So there's a lot that we go over and I, you know, typically when we do this counseling, we like to do it more than once because 90% or probably 60% of what we say kind of goes over the patient's head because they're receiving so much information that first day. So as you said, we definitely need to talk about toxicities, but the first thing really is adherence, proper administration and drug interactions. So when I go through adherence, I normally propose a few different methods for the patient. Some examples are like the old school pill containers. They still work really well. There are mobile apps for drug adherence. 
or sometimes just setting an alarm at the same time each day on the patient's cell phone. So if the patient happens to be on venetoclax, I mentioned earlier, there's a starter pack. This also serves as a good adherent strategy for that first month for the patient because it's a blister pack. Now, in addition to one of these other methods, I still recommend that the patient utilize a calendar to keep track of what medications they're taking each day, especially if they're on venetoclax doing that dose ramp up. Now, most of our patients are elderly because this is a disease of the elderly. So they may or may not prefer one of these newer high-tech options that I mentioned. Then I also take time to review drug interactions. So I explain if there's an interaction and why it's an interaction. And I really spend a lot of time going through over-the-counter medications and herbal products because these commonly get missed and patients forget that those are still medications and they still can have a true impact on the oral treatments that they're taking. So what other activities are we missing? What, what, can, what more can pharmacists be involved in? So pharmacists play a key role in multiple steps of the patient's access to the specialty medication. So first on the clinic side, we have our clinical pharmacists. So they build the outpatient treatment plans and order sets for each regimen. They're also an integral member of that clinical team to help determine which CLL therapy is most appropriate for each patient. Clinical pharmacists also help out with patient education. They either educate the patient themselves or the other clinical team members. So we play a huge role in education of providers and nurses in the clinic. We review how to correctly take, handle, store, and dispose of these oral targeted agents. And of course, like I had spent a lot of time on, we definitely, the clinical pharmacists definitely spend a lot of time assisting with toxicity management. So for example, you know, early abrutinib associated diarrhea can be really cumbersome and can cause a patient to be non-compliant. Now, this can be really easily mitigated with a nighttime administration of the medication or perhaps a dose reduction. So that's just one really good, easy spot where clinical pharmacists can make an impact. As I mentioned, uh, pharmacists also have a role in staff education. Now, this can include education on the regulatory side, such as specialty pharmacy requirements, but also nursing education on the medications themselves. And many times, clinical practice is set up for the nurses to do the triage patient calls. So therefore, it's imperative that nursing and other clinical staff be up to date on clinical pearls of each of these new oral targeted agents as they come about. Now, retail and specialty pharmacists are also pivotal in drug dispensing and distribution. So as you can see, pharmacists are really involved in every step of the medication acquisition process, from choosing appropriate treatment and dose to patient and staff education, all the way to proper dispensation and distribution to the patient. I wanna thank you because going to um, the depths of understanding what a patient is going through is so part of being a good healthcare provider and pharmacists have always been the most trusted uh, you know, healthcare providers based on surveys that have been out there for consumers. And when I think of you giving a shout out to our pharmacists, letting them know, please be aware of those over-the-counter, um, you know, medications, uh, you know, ginseng, garlic, grapeseed, there's a bunch of them out there that people think, well, this is just great for me. And, and you're like, listen, if you're not paying attention to what it does to you, because even though it's natural and it's over-the-counter, it still does something to you. So thank you so much for mentioning that. And it really makes it, um, 
relevant because I know our pharmacists out there hear this all the time, you know, from from many patients um, in, it, you know, in, in multiple disease states. So I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to go through all of this. You know, something I'm very passionate about. And, you know, I see it every single day, the huge impact that pharmacists make for all of our CLL patients. Absolutely. We always give our special guest, which was you, for a second time. And we thank you so much for coming back to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. It's meant a lot to us. We hope to have you back again, but we can't let you go yet. We have to answer our, our last question, just like we asked last time. What would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in today? So CLL management relies heavily on oral targeted therapies. So these BTK inhibitors and venetoclax. Now both drug classes are incredibly efficacious in CLL, but they definitely have their own set of unique toxicities. Really the key thing I want everyone to remember is that pharmacists play an integral role in the management of CLL, the toxicity management and patient and staff education and continue to advocate for yourself and continue to be there for the patients. Thank you so much for once again, Dr. Catherine Tobin, coming back and sharing with us your uh, passion as a pharmacist. We encourage all pharmacists listening in to reach out to us. If there's anything we can ever do for you, uh, you can find us on social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, as well as the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team. Um, let us know what you think of these podcasts and how we can make them better. And if you have any ideas, please reach out to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. You can find them on Twitter at, at PharmacyTimesCE. And um, they're very responsive. I absolutely love their team. Thank you so much for putting together such a great uh, two-part on this um, complex subject. It is. It's. It, we need more information, and it's good to hear it through podcasting, easy on the go. And um, we appreciate everything our pharmacists are doing. And once again, I just want to say a special thank you to you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I um, really enjoyed spending time talking through a topic I'm very passionate about and look forward to being back. And pharmacists, thank you for listening to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>